Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Ready to triple your creative production speed? Seltra is a software for scaling creative and content in the cloud. In Seltra, brands can create and launch all the variations they need for successful campaigns. More at Seltra.com. That's C-E-L-T-R-A.com. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek uh, and Co. It's a special day. It is indeed. We are at episode 200. Yay! Man. So we have some special guests with us. Uh, We have Stephanie Paderick, Adweek's executive editor, and Jessica Ferris, or Jay-Z as we like to say, who is our audience engagement editor. Welcome back to the show and thank you for celebrating with us, ladies. Thank you, Ko. It's exciting to be here. Thank you for having me, Ko. So we decided to do something fun. Um, David, what's our plan? Well, first, I should introduce you, of course. Uh, Co-M, tell us, uh, remind us for, uh, I'm sure for many people, they're going to be diving right into episode 200. So remind us who you are, Co. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, (laughs) After doing this uh, less than 100 times um, since joining the team, but I am the community editor and, um, you know, really happy to to continue um, with with the podcast. We have regular listeners, new listeners, and um, one of the questions we collected, um, Mary Busby said, can there be 200 more episodes, please? So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, Back to you, David. Yeah, it's uh, so today we're going to be, as you can tell, taking questions uh, from folks across our social channels uh, for Adweek. Some came into us personally, and it's it's pretty free form. So, you know, if you're looking for a rigidly structured episode, this is not uh, going to be the one, but it is going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to answer some stuff about our own kind of professional and personal lives, stuff about the advertising industry, the marketing industry. Uh, and, uh, Steph, uh, it's, it's been a little bit since you've been on the show, uh, and you were away for a while. Uh, so remind us, uh, about what you do here at Adweek, other than being our amazing boss. What do I do? I am, I'm remembering myself. So I am freshly back from maternity leave. I was out for about four months and I've been back for a couple of weeks. I'm the executive editor. And so I, uh, I manage our, our newsroom and our editorial department. I work really closely uh, with each of our channel editors over our different coverage areas, um, as well as our uh, story desk and our visual newsroom. Um, I've been working with you, David, for about six years now. This summer came up on six years with Adweek. So um, this is, it's nice to, it has been a while since I've been on the podcast too. So it's really great to get back in the saddle here with you. And uh, Jess Ferris, uh, you have been with, man, how long have you been here now? 
I've been here since February. I'm still fairly new, but I feel like I've been here a long time. I was about to say, since February means 740 years. <laughs> Jay-Z, you're already an institution. I love it. Yes, Jess, uh, tell us what, what all is encompassed in your role. Uh, I am the audience engagement editor, which means I run all of our social media channels. I also write our newsletter, First Things First. Um, you can see me on Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. I also occasionally write digital features and do anything else that needs doing. Gosh, she does 75 jobs. It's humbling to the rest of us. But it's the uh, best job ever. And I would, I would really uh, encourage everyone, as I have on multiple episodes, to check out our TikTok account. I think it's just Adweek, just good old Adweek on TikTok. And Jess is the face of our weekly uh, weird news roundups, which are extremely popular to the tune of like sometimes hundreds of thousands of views. So, uh, so thanks for making our TikTok uh, account such an awesome gem. It's uh, one of my real highlights. Gladly. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do next with it. All right. So as I mentioned, we got a lot of questions uh, that have come in from across the board. Co, do you want to start us out with one that's uh, that you think would be a good starting point? Yes, because the people want to know, David, Brittany Westbrook in particular, what's your original hometown? Because you don't have a southern accent. Ah, yes. And then we're going to go around because I want to find out where everybody's from. Um because I feel like none of us really has any sort of defining accent. I am from Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, so I'm born and raised in Alabama. I still live in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, but uh, Huntsville, this is probably not true of everybody, but I feel like Huntsville doesn't have a real thick accent. It's a lot of people coming in from outside of the city because Huntsville, if anyone knows Huntsville, Alabama, you probably know it for being the home of Space Camp, the Space and Rocket Center, the Marshall Space Flight Center. Uh, I grew up in a NASA family. And uh, so I don't know. There's a lot of uh, people from outside of the South who come there. Uh, and I don't really remember much of a thick accent. That said, uh, when I was a kid, I had a very thick accent growing up kind of in the rural uh, country outside of Huntsville. And I moved to Washington, D.C. when I was like uh, maybe like nine, nine or ten. And it got just bullied out of me on day one of school of like sixth grade. And, uh, and so I think I lost my entire Southern accent, uh, after a decade, uh, on day two of going to school in suburban Virginia. Uh, but, uh, Steph, uh, were, are you from Arizona originally? I am. I was, I was born in Denver, Colorado, but, uh, my family moved to Phoenix when I was a year old and, um, yeah, spent, uh, spent many, many years there. Um, I think, yeah, Phoenix does not have much of, much of an accent, um, sort of Southwest Sonoran desert area. Um, probably if anything, you'll find a bit of a Valley girl, California accent there. Um, but not so much of a Southern one. And, um, I moved to New York 12 years ago, um, with the plan to just do it for a year or two to say I lived in New York plan was to go back to Arizona, but here I am, my family's still asking when the heck I'm going to go back. <laughs> Uh, Co, you obviously have just an immaculate TV accent or TV broadcaster accent. Uh, so tell us about it. tell us about your background, and then did you like because you were an on-air personality, right? You've you've probably had legit like voice training. That's right, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I hear it. <laughs> it's something that um, that kind of grew on me as you know, when you're starting out as a TV reporter in smaller towns, um, and especially thanks to my Asian genes, I would say, you know, you look younger, so you try to 
sound older. Um, and I think, you know, growing up on Guam and going to private school with mainland teachers, um, you just don't really have an accent. But I will say that I tend to adopt um, various accents. Like there are a lot of Filipinos on Guam. Um, if I'm in California, I do, you know, kind of start to sound like a Kardashian of sorts. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I really understand like how to do a Midwestern accent. I, Jess, I feel like maybe, where did you grow up? And um, you're very good at enunciating. <laughs> Thank you. I'm from the South, but I also do not have a Southern accent. Um, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and my family and friends always told me I had a TV voice. And I do vaguely recall like hearing my friends say things with Southern accents and then coming home and saying them similarly, similarly and my mom telling me to say it again until I got it right. So I think I've had, I've been trained to emphasize. And then I was a theater kid, which helped me with that as well. Yeah, well, that was a good one. I've, I'm learning stuff about us already. Uh, so <laughs> let's see. I'm, I'm going to pick the next one, and then uh, and then we'll let Steph pick one here. Um, okay. Oh, this is a good question. I'm going to ask Steph this question uh, because she runs the newsroom. How do you decide what to publish an article about? That's a great question, David. Um, well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a group of channel editors who oversee each of Adweek's verticals. So, you know, you oversee creativity, um, you know, we have someone on agencies, brands, programmatic, and they, they really have a lot of power in terms of determining which stories uh, go into Adweek because they are a subject matter experts. So they, they know those topics better than anybody and they're the best people to pitch. Um, also say, you know, we, every morning we start the day with a meeting. Sometimes it's an all staff meeting where we talk about stories. Others, it's a smaller group of people. Um, but it's sort of how we, how we start our day is just really talking about what, you know, out of all the things that we could cover on our beats, what's the most important today? And what's a story where we have a chance to offer a new angle, you know, something that you're not just going to find in say Business Insider or one of our competitors? Um, where can we come at it with perhaps a unique insight? Um, yeah, that was, uh, and, and then I, I also, I often get asked, um, how we decide which ads to write about. Um, and it's obviously it's an art and a science, but I'd say typically it's ones where we have, it's like, sometimes I'll just tweet an ad, like here's a new ad. And because if literally that's all I have to say about it, then that's probably what it, what it kind of merits is just like, here, watch this ad. Um, but typically we tend to cover ones that we think, there's there's a trend there's a top, you know there's a deeper message there or there's something about the craft and the way that it was made um you know but but if we don't have you know we're definitely not a clickbaity publication in any way um and i i think if we're going to write an entire article about something we're going to make sure there's enough there to really merit uh saying um and uh with that steph i will uh let you pick the next question Ooh, okay i I want to ask you guys a fun one. I want to know what each of your walk-on songs is, as does one of our listeners. Jess, what's your walk-up song? Undeniably, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. There is no better walk-on song. Don't stop me now. Don't stop me. Because I'm having a good time. Having a good time. I would say like anything with 
Beyonce and a beat because I also do the whole like Sasha Fierce personality, stepping into like that stronger personality thing. Uh, I would go with uh, People of the Sun by Rage Against the Machine or Hypnotize uh, by Biggie. It would be one of those two. Either. Either would just make me so happy when they come on. Just so happy. Steph, what's yours? So mine changes, but lately I'm starting every day. I'm not walking onto a stage, but I'm walking into my home office, which is also my four-year-old's bedroom. And he and I listen to Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake from Trolls. We have a little dance party, and that's how we're both walking on to our day. Oh my God, I'd love to join this virtual dance party. <laughs> that is amazing. I love it. Whose turn is it to pick? Is that Jess? Yes. Pick a question. All right. Let's see. How about, um, let's see. <laughs> One of our readers asked, uh, what is your preferred passion project and why is it Needlepoint? Um, and even if it's not Needlepoint, I would like to know. Yeah, I think that one I... might might have been aimed at me. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> might have been trolling. Or are you do, are you doing uh, thread thread work as well, stuff? Well, in the early days of the pandemic, I was I was being served lots of Instagram ads about like you know needlepoint and paint by number kits for adults, and I was ordering everything because I'm like I need I need a hobby. Like I got to get a pandemic hobby, and I literally just have a stack of like embroidery projects that I haven't even started. They came in. I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't have the energy. I don't know. David, how's your needlepoint going? Um, I, I do a lot of cross stitching at the beginning of the quarantine. I started getting back into, um, uh, knitting, which I haven't done in a few years, but I think my anxiety level was too high for knitting. Like if I get distracted when I'm knitting, I just keep adding and dropping rows. And so if you're trying to make a scarf, it just ends up looking like this weird Mobius strip pasta noodle thing. And um, so I was like, this is not, this is not the right thing. Uh, but then I, I got back into cross stitch uh, because my wife was doing a project and she hadn't done it since she was a kid. I hadn't done it since I was a kid. I've now completed, I think like four uh, cross stitch projects, pretty ambitious. Like I'm pretty happy with them. And I'm currently, uh, I won't, I won't describe the one I'm doing right now, just on the off chance my mother randomly decides to listen because it's her Christmas present. Um, but I'm doing one that's super uh, interesting right now that I'm, but yeah, man, cross stitch, I don't know. It's like so calming and it just, it occupies just enough of my brain that it keeps the anxiety parts from flaring up, but I can still like watch a TV show. And every once in a while I look down and I'm like, what the hell did I just do? And I'll just undo like seven or eight stitches. But other than that, it's a lot easier to go back than it is in, in, in knitting. 
uh, Co, what's your, you've taken on uh, a few hobbies. I mean, TikTok, <laughs> TikTok alone is like a second job for you. So <laughs> I love TikTok dances um, and challenges, but I would say, um, you know, I also paint, right? Uh, I like to just kind of get out of my head. And I also, I don't know if I would consider a passion project. I guess it is. I like to send um, postcards and care packages. Um, I think especially now it's just, you know, a nice gesture. I like going to the post office if that's the project. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, when you save the post office. Um, Jess, TikTok queen. Yeah, there's that. Uh, you know, you would think that as a social media editor, Professionally, I would get tired of social media, but my passion project is just more social media. Um, I make TikToks about etymology every weekday, and I've been noodling on a second book about it lately, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but lately this month, my TikTok videos have been focused on Halloween-based etymology, and uh, in one of my upcoming episodes, I'm going to address the word horror, which is derived from that hair-raising feeling of fright you get when you're thoroughly creeped out. It comes from the Latin horror or horrore, um, meaning to shudder or to bristle with fear. Yes, anyone, uh, if I've not already plugged it this episode, as I try to do on every episode, follow Jess Ferris on TikTok. I've learned so much about so many words, especially lately, nightmare and all sorts of other great Halloween-centric words. Um, okay, I think it's Co. I think it's back to you to pick a question. Okay. Um, I really like these fun ones. So thank you to everyone who submitted yours. Um, okay. If you're going to start an agency today, what type of agency would you start and why? David? Um, I mean, I don't think I would, uh, but if I did, so I started my own company when I left my agency before I came on full-time with, uh, Adweek. So this was like seven years ago and I started a content strategy consulting business, uh, and it was great. And I had wonderful clients and I really enjoyed the work. I just did not enjoy running a business. I did not enjoy, um, doing paperwork, which I apparently did poorly on because the IRS came after me for several years. Uh, not that I made much money, but you know, I just, you fill out one form wrong and they will hunt you down forever. Um, so yeah, I, so I wouldn't, um, but if I did, I think, uh, I still think that that model makes sense because content strategy is something that a lot of places seem to struggle with. And they have in-house content studios, like brands will build in in-house content studios, but they don't really necessarily have a, a strategy. And sometimes they get kind of insular about their own channels and they don't really think bigger. Uh, so no one's pushing them into things like TikTok or how to use those channels. So I don't know, that feels like a cop-out answer. Just go back to lame consulting like I did before. Uh, Jess, what would you... Well, I, I too have done a lot of freelance content strategy consulting. And in particular, I have a niche helping authors build their social and content platforms um, to build out, you know, their presence online. Um, and then, so I'd probably do that. But I was also the editor-in-chief of a graphic design magazine for a few years. And I feel like I would really enjoy running a graphic design studio, though I'm not sure that I'm as good at graphic design as that would require. Oh man, you just mistakenly mentioned that you are a graphic design expert 
on a, a call with me and Steph, like we're adding to your job description. Oh dear. <laughs> Doing graphic design now. Steph, uh, you, you've had a, a fascinating career and uh, poetry expert and um, among many other things, what, what would be your, if not agency, your business that you launch? I, I hadn't even thought of that with poetry agency. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the demand is so high. Yeah, I love, I mean, we have a lot of experience in this group um, consulting. I, I did, I consulted for brands um, for five years and went in and helped train their marketing departments on business writing. Um, but I, you know, something, something that I, I actually think there's a lot of room for as an agency that specializes in political ads and political strategy because they, political ads, I mean, as we all know, they've become almost parodies of themselves. And I think it's an area of advertising where there's so much room for growth. Maybe this is on my mind because, you know, we're approaching November. Um, but I saw just the other day an, a type of ad I'd never seen before where it was um, Biden and Harris being filmed watching uh, President Trump's town hall and reacting to it in real time. And it was almost like they were fact-checking and giving commentary on it. I'm like, this is a kind of ad I've never seen before. And you can debate whether it was effective or not, but I think it's a place where there's lots of room to play and improve. Co, how about you? Hmm, I actually thought of my answer while David was answering his, um, because I've done you know content marketing, but I actually think and maybe this stems from my role as a community editor, right? In overseeing um, the opinion vertical and working with outside writers. I feel like I would really enjoy working with creators. So kind of like an influencer agency, but only signing on the ones that are don't have huge egos. But, um, you know, because I've, I've worked with celebrities in the past and some are great and some are you know, difficult. Um, but I, I really like being around and around creative people um, and, you know, forming bonds and being a cheerleader and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, David, did you have uh, another question? <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's grab another one here before I, there's a few that are kind of hyper-specific that we will probably just want to throw it at, at one of us. Um, but there's still, I wanted to keep this going because I, lo I love the round robin. I'm learning so much about my friends. Um, this one hit me in the soul because I've taken so little time to do this. Uh, favorite book that you've read in 2020. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just go ahead and give my, my lousy answer because I, I feel like I've done like no reading this year. Um, I, I've been rereading the Witcher books, but again, it's like, uh, comfort food it's just because i've read them before i've watched the movie you know or watched the show i just i think i started rereading them when the show first came back on but it's just one of those like i'll read a chapter before i go to bed but it's like at the end of the day i'm so in, in, intellectually and emotionally just carved out uh that i i just like i've got this pile of amazing books that that even worse than the usual backlog because I'm just like, I can't, I can't think. Um, I am proud of the fact that I'm almost done with, uh, I believe it's called the Aubrey Maturin series. It is master and commander is probably what more people know it as the naval, uh, naval fiction series about the Napoleonic wars told from the perspective of a British captain and his uh, best friend, who's the ship surgeon. They made it into a movie with Russell Crowe, uh, but it's 20 books long 
And I, I've never been one of those people that reads 20 book historical fiction series. So I decided many years ago that I wanted to become that person. Uh, and I think I'm on like book uh, 18. So I'm closing in on the end of that series. It's cool. I mean, it's amazing. I love it. It's the best, like, I, I think there's just something to be said for these really epically long series where you get to know characters over the course of like two decades or whatever it is. Uh, I just, that's why I, I set out on it. Uh, so I think I've read like one or two of those in quarantine, but otherwise not. So I don't know, Steph, I feel like you, you had maternity leave and you've always been someone who makes time for reading. What, what's been your, your highlights this year? Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm almost the opposite. I think if I had to pick a hobby for quarantine, it's been reading and I love, I love books. Like I, I was a big book person as a kid. I have an MFA in poetry, but honestly, until this year, I, it's like, I would maybe finish a book a year, two books a year I'd get to like page 30 of a lot and then just get too distracted to start. And I think something about quarantine and maternity leave, like allowed me to focus. Um, I started a book club for the first time in my life of sort of moms of four-year-olds in my neighborhood in Brooklyn um, who wanted uh, something to talk about other than four-year-olds and quarantine. And so the first book that we chose was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And I loved it. I don't know if any of you guys have read it, but um, it's a it's a literary it's literary fiction. Um, and it's about a fictional town in uh, called L Mallard, Louisiana. Um, set back in like the 1950s, mid-century, um, that is uh, designed for light-skinned Blacks, essentially. And it's about two twin girls who grow up in this town and as they come of age, choose different paths in terms of their identity. And it follows them over the decades and it really um, so smartly gets into issues of race and identity um, and feels like an instant classic to me. And the author is 30 years old. She's, she's so talented. So anyway, I really, I really recommend checking that one out. I'm, I'm sold on that one. Um, that sounds really beautiful and powerful. I feel like, um, especially this year, uh, you know, I was trying to pick up different, um, books by black authors. Um, so like memoirs, um, more recently, Elaine Welteroth, um, Kitsi Lehman, um, and then one I'm still finishing from over the summer. It's an anthology called Alone Together. So it's like poetry, personal essays. Um, it you know the the profit support independent bookstores, and um, it's just a it's just a nice kind of collection of how other people are surviving quarantine. Um, so I like I like those kinds of books. Jess, what about you? Those were some lovely answers, and I have some new, some new books on my list as well. Um, I have been devouring audiobooks this year, and I'm a big sci-fi and fantasy fan. So I finally finished the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. It's won tons of Hugo Awards. It was wonderful. You should also follow her on Twitter. She's super inspiring and clever and an incredible diversity advocate. And she has a cat named King Ozymandias, and you say it just like that, like you do when you recite the poem. Um, I've also read like 15 Terry Pratchett books that I hadn't gotten to. Monstrous Regiment was probably one of my favorites. Um, the Expanse series, which has an Amazon counterpart, um, Amazon Prime video counterpart, was exceptional. Um, I finally got around to reading the Jurassic Park book, which was so good. Um, and then the House on the Cerulean Sea was also so charming and just like a little mental massage with undercurrents about diversity and inclusion and disabilities and acceptance. So any of those. 
I have to tell one quick uh, cute New York story. My last cute New York story, because it literally happened like five minutes before I flew home and have not gotten to go back to the city since. Uh, so this was like literally days before quarantine kicked on. Uh, but I went to the Strand, which I'm sure all of us love. And uh, the I, I, I found that... And this is just one of those things. I'd read the three-body problem, for those who have not heard about it. Uh, I know Jess has. It is a big sci-fi award winner. Uh, it's a Chinese sci-fi novel. Uh, it's very good. It's very uh, challenging in certain ways, uh, and both emotionally and just honestly intellectually. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And then I did not know until I was standing in the Strand that there were sequels to it. So I was like, oh, cool. I'll pick up book two. I got on the subway, and as anyone who knows New York, you don't talk to random people on the subway, right? Uh, and I'm sitting there, and it's not a crowded subway at all. There were only like four other people on there. And this woman go, comes over, and and she had been like arguing with her friend who was on there. And she comes over, she's like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just have to ask. Like, have you read that yet? Are you are you almost done?" I was like, "No, I, I literally I just bought it. Like, the book was just sitting in my lap." And she was like, "It's my favorite book. It's my favorite book ever." And I was like, "It was the I think it's called The Dark Forest is maybe the name of the sequel." Anyway. Uh, and she was like, I asked my friend if, if I should come over and say something. And she was like, no, of course not. But I, I, I had to go do it anyway. And I just had to ask if you had read it. What do you think? It's just like, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And it was just so like this like sweet, pure moment where I was like, oh, oh, oh okay, cool. And then she, and then her, her friend was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my friend talking to people. <laughs> but, so I, I still have not read it. Uh, Cause once again, I think I've just been at such a, a difficult place at the end of each night where I'm just like, I kind of just need to uh, purge my brain. 70% of marketers spend more time producing digital advertising content than they like. Don't be one of them. Find out how creative automation can help. Learn how at Celtra.com. That's C-E-L-T-R-A.com. Okay, who's, whose turn is it? David, can I ask one? Please. Okay, so one of our listeners wanted to know, and I'm curious too, out of the 200 episodes you've recorded, I guess including this one, um, which is your favorite and why? Um, you know, it's funny whenever I think of these, uh, when it, like people have asked that and I always say something like, oh, when I got to interview Ira Glass uh, on our podcast, it can, uh, and he was great, which is also nice to find out that someone you really admire is, is great. Um, and, uh, and we've done a few, the, the Ryan Reynolds episode that we did, uh, from our brand week interview with him, uh, got a lot of positive feedback, um, cause not everyone could see the, the presentation in real time, but honestly, it's, it's like, it would still be the conversation ones that stick with me, but it's ones where I kind of just have these really pleasant memories of how it came together, usually because it was, uh, as anyone, especially this crew knows that recording a podcast for some reason is like such a technical, um, just just series of pitfalls and traps and anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Everything's always crashing. The hardware never works. Uh, and so the more pressure you're under, the harder it is to pull, pull off something. And so it's like um, I interviewed the, at the time, the recruiting director for Widen & Kennedy Amsterdam, Sophie Wirth uh, in Cannes one year. And for one, it was an amazing conversation. Uh, she is a phenomenal human being and has really inspired me about how the ad industry can be more uh, diverse and inclusive in a lot of different ways. So it was an amazing conversation. It was also, we had a million 
uh, just recording issues and problems, including that the house she was staying in was so loud. And like in the middle of the interview, you just hear someone start peeing right next to us. Like, cause the bathroom is like, we're just sitting in the kitchen. We tried sitting outside and there were like jackhammers going. And it was just one of those where we just kept trying to, and then so we finally get it done. And it was an amazing conversation and I was so happy that it was completed. And as, as Steph especially knows, can is just chaos uh, of all the content we have to crank out. So I go back to send it and my version, my side of the conversation had gotten corrupted the entire thing. So I, (laughs) but I was so excited about this episode that I couldn't like just trash it. So I went back to my apartment, which had no air conditioner. And it was a year when it was like 99 degrees at Cannes. And so I just sat in my apartment wearing the headphones, listening to her side of the conversation, trying to remember what the hell I had asked. Right. And, and I'm just like, huh. And that, you know, so what did you take away from that? Meanwhile, I'm just drenched in sweat, right? Like it's a million degrees in this apartment, but I can't open the windows because it's too loud outside. There's too many cars. It's so I'm just like the thing it was like torture it was the bad place and yet it was all because I was just so into this conversation I was so committed to making this episode happen and uh, I will say that Sophie has since commented that a lot of people who heard that interview like reached out to her applied to work for her like you know talked about how important it was to hear that conversation so it ended up well uh and and it's just things like that where i think back to it and i think a lot of times hopefully no one notices that you have to frankenstein this crap together sometimes but if you're it just goes to show like if that conversation had not been amazing i would have just been like whatever didn't didn't work out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Moving on with my life. Uh, Co, you have uh, been with us for, for a, a, a while now. It always feels like forever, but uh, I'm curious uh, w- which episode sticks out to you. Well, I'm really proud of the ones where we can um, react to to really what people are talking about. So, you know, this past week um, with the Motel 6 Richards Group situation, um, I wasn't a part of it, but I'm I'm glad that um, you know you David were able to to get a, a smart conversation up and and then for me I think the most memorable one is another one I set out on but I listened in on as a producer so we I I feel like as media folks um, we have a great p- privilege of asking um, people to come on the platform and sharing theirs. So when we had um, Bennett D. Bennett and Nathan Young from Six Hundred Rising uh, to kind of guest host, um, that you know was really important f- for me from a, a DNI value standpoint. So just really bringing um, you know difficult issues to light and having deeper conversations um, is it's it's really great. Now, now, Steph, you have been on the podcast several times, but you've also hosted uh, a lot of other things, uh, many panels, many videos, uh, done several interviews uh, on camera and elsewhere. Which which the ones sticks out to you, uh, even beyond podcasting? What what do you remember the most? Oh my goodness, that's a good question. Um, Got to pause for a second. I didn't have an answer ready for this one. I like that you're like, uh, that's a good question that I just asked you. That's a good question that I had not <laughs> thought of until you just asked it. Well, I haven't been here for very long, but I, I wanted to add that over the past like year, we've done some super incredible um, 
diversity summits. Um, just since I've been here, I really, really enjoyed most recently we did one on um, disabilities and professionals with disabilities. And the, um, the insights in that summit were, were beyond me. Like I, I had never even considered a lot of the things that people said in, in that one. Um, we also had um, one with black professionals, one with Asian American professionals and one with uh, Hispanic American professionals. Um, and I, I just, I really enjoyed all three of those because um, there's so much more that I need to learn about those communities and what people of different backgrounds face that I just don't myself. Um, so I'm so happy that, that we've been able to give a platform to more people and learn more from them. Yeah, and I'll just say, um a lot of the interviews that I've done at our events and then also um, for our video series with chief marketing officers um, and, and particularly a lot of women in that role who are just phenomenal leaders. And so I think that that's, that's my favorite type of interview uh, to do, you know, at an event um, is really talking to women leaders about um, how they run their teams, how they think differently about leadership. I mean, some great examples that come to mind are Allegro O'Hare um, at a brand week a year ago. Um, in California, you know, she talked about how important it is to to ask what you ask for what you want to really put it out there. And I know, I mean, that's not, you know, that's advice we hear a lot. But the way that she talked about it was like, you know, when you're you're in a negotiation, you're talking about a job, and there's that little voice that's like, I really want this, but I'm afraid to ask for it. And she was like, just really put it out on the table. And that's like a piece of advice that I still carry with me um, and use in my own life. So uh, we've had a lot of inspiring ones over the years. Uh, Jess, why don't you pick a question for us? Gladly. Um, this is one for all of you. I would really love to hear your perspective on it, but it was asked by um, Sergio Bernal. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, the question is, uh, what's the largest change you've seen in the advertising industry in the last five years? A couple things come to mind. Um, one is, I mean, one is just the rise of consultancies. I think, you know, I've been at Adweek for six years, and I think when I started, they were um, less a part of our, our coverage as they are now. Um, and another one is perhaps more interesting to talk about is um, this idea of people waking up to power. And David and I were talking about this the other day within the context of the Richards Group. Um, and you know, like the whistleblowing that we're seeing at agencies and at brands. But I think in, in a broad sense, particularly this year, um, you, we really have people holding brands accountable. Um, part of it is the sensibilities of, um, of you know, the younger generations. Um, part of it is you know, the, the voice that they've found on social media. Um, part of it is, you know, the civil rights movement that we're in the middle of. Um, and then with, again, with the Richards group, we see brands in turn holding agencies accountable. So it can create this, this domino effect, um, from the ground up that I think is quite interesting. Co, I wonder, you're nodding. I wonder, uh, I wonder what changes you've noticed. Um, I, I, th I was nodding because, um, you know, that's, that's, really accelerated this year, um, the things that you mentioned. Um, I think there have been, there's been that kind of back and forth with in-house, not in-house, um, rise of in-house, and then 
rise of like influencer marketing and experiential until this year. So I know it's like constant to constant battle to try to, to keep up with what's kind of at large and, and what's to come. Um, and of course, there's more discussion about automation and using AI and the purpose-driven marketing has has now come to, you know, the top. Um, so David, Jess? I, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately uh, is that, and Steph, Steph touched on this as well, is kind of the the bottom up influence uh, in in the agency world. I think this goes beyond agencies, but I've, it's where I've noticed it the most. Uh, and I credit me too, you know, really specifically with this. I think this idea that the the power does not have to belong to the to the few. Um, you know, this is something I remember Cheryl Sandberg even talking about in Lean In, like that that she worried that uh, that women and, and other marginalized groups were often being pitted against each other instead of being instead of working alongside each other to help elevate uh, the bigger, you know, and, and obviously that's not a criticism of any of those groups. It's just the reality of how power in, in a lot of traditional ways had worked. And I think because of that, people in power got away with a lot uh, for a very long time and a lot of abuses. And we saw that as definitely come to light with me too. Uh, and since then, I just feel like there's more empowerment of people at the, you know, I hope this doesn't sound dismissive of their roles, but at like these lower kind of ranks within advertising. And I think the other side effect of that is not only have some of those people become the most influential people in advertising. Like when I personally think about what we mean by influence. Uh, it's the people who are really dictating the conversation and the criticisms of advertising are no longer these pundits, you know, that write a weekly column or whatever. They are people who are kind of just in their first, maybe like senior writer kind of a role, but they're, they're often in their late twenties. Um, and they know enough about the industry to be fed up with the downsides and they've gotten really not just opinionated, they've gotten really influential about it. Uh, and it, you know, we've seen that with kind of this rise of the, of ad Twitter, the changing nature of ad Twitter, meaning like the people who talk about advertising on there. Uh, and so that, that to me has really struck me, but I think it's also, you're seeing it even just with things like the Richards group, as Steph mentioned, that, the founder of the agency, the owner of the agency, the iconic kind of driving force of an agency is the one who made this comment about a campaign being too black. And it was his own staff that really rebelled against him. And leadership tried to say, it sounds like, um, leadership tried to say, it's taken care of, don't worry about it. He's apologizing. And the staff really insisted on a more substantial response. And to me, that's like that's kind of the reality of where we live now is that the pressure won't even come from outside. It won't necessarily come from advocacy groups. It'll come from your own staff, which is the way it should work. Um, it, and except it should never spill over to this kind of crisis levels because you should actually listen to them and then act on it, you know, instead of kind of trying to shove it down. Uh, so I, I think that's how, how that plays out in the output and the ads that come out of it, I, d I don't know. Um, but I think we're also, I wrote a piece a few months ago for the print magazine about the, the, the decline of the advertising, um, what did we call it? Like not demigods, but you know, like these iconic people on pedestals that the ad industry has always kind of worshiped. That's going away. There's still some of that, but nobody like looks up to these random 60 year old guys just because they've been in the industry long enough and they won a bunch of stuff 20 years ago. I think I think there's a lot more excitement around 
uh, people who are creating things now. And, and there's a lot more peer-to-peer mentoring and looking out for each other and, and helping elevate each other uh, that, that is scary to executives. I can tell that a lot of them are really intimidated by it. And that's kind of cool. I, I like that. Well, we are just about running out of time. I do want to end with one fun question. It's very important. It's what are your go-to quarantine snacks? Uh (laughs) Jess? All right. Um, I would say probably I've eaten like my weight in smoked salmon since the, since quarantine began. And then over the past like month or two apples, like every kind of apple you can imagine. Ambrosia and envy apples are my choices this week, but like literally every kind of apple. Well, salmon sounds fancy and it is fall. So go apples. Steph, uh, you and your, your son have any favorites? Food is getting me through quarantine. I was I was eight and nine months pregnant, like in March and April when it hit. And so um, a couple things, donuts. I have some really great bakeries near me. Um, one is called Clementine Bakery and they do vegan donuts and they're delicious. Um, also, one of my indulgences is a local grocer named, uh, it's, it's Sahadi's, which is a Mediterranean um, supermarket. And you can get really great, like, bulk Turkish apricots and um, malted milk balls, which I don't think are Mediterranean, but they're quite good anyway. And so lots of like little snacky things. David, how about you? Yeah, Steph and I have been joking for years about the Adweek diet where like you you blink and it's 4 p.m. and you you haven't eaten anything and you haven't done anything. I'd say that like I'm on the Adweek diet times two now because not only do I I already do that, I can't eat when I'm on a Zoom, you know, because it just feels weird. Uh, it feels like gross. <laughs> so yeah, some days I'm desperate and I'll just do the lean where you like lean off camera. <laughs> I don't know why I never turn it off. I just feel like that's rude. I don't know. Um, but because of that, like I've I've almost stopped eating entirely. It's really good for me. It's so healthy. It's such a healthy way to live. Um, but no, I, I would say like my snack choices uh, have been which this cracked me up that we ran an article about this because I thought I was just being a weirdo Sour Patch Kids. Like I'm just weirdly into Sour Patch Kids all of a sudden. Um, the, uh, those, those chunks of jalapeno pretzels, you know, like the shattered pretzel chunks. I don't know. I don't know what the real name is, but like the cheese ones, they're amazing. Yeah, I'm like, I'm addicted to the jalapeno ones, but again, like you can't, they're so loud you can't do anything when you're like vaguely on camera um and uh yeah I don't know those are those are the ones that kind of I started making granola at home uh at the beginning of quarantine just when it was you couldn't go to the grocery store you didn't want to and I have to say that's one of those things that as soon as I started doing it I was like why have I ever bought granola which I'm not one of those people like if I try something and it's mildly annoying I will go back to buying it like, I, I can't be bothered when people are like, well, you could just make your own pumpkin puree. I'm like, go to hell. I'll buy it in a can. I don't need to make pumpkin puree. Um, but yeah, granola, like so easy. You know, it just, I was like, I probably spent 17 cents making this like gigantic thing of granola. And then you go to the store and it's like seven, $7 or $8 for like a tiny little thing. It's like, what a scam. <laughs> I've got to try. I haven't tried quarantine granola. 
I'm going to give this a try. I mean, if you, if, if you have oats and you have, I don't know, brown sugar, you're like halfway there. <laughs> the rest is just whatever random stuff, dried stuff you feel like throwing in. But uh, code, did we do yours? Oh, I um, will kind of go on a stress eating chocolate phase. So I'll have chocolate peanut butter cookies. Um, I like hummus. Uh, lots of coffee. I don't know if that's a snack, but got to get through the day. So I just remembered my terrible, I really need to not do this. Uh, my terrible quarantine snack, because I never ate this before is that French onion dip. Like the, the, you know, the, uh, it's basically just like sour cream and maybe a few little hints of, of onion. Um, I'll just get like a bag of Aldi brand ruffle chips or whatever. And, and then I'll like look over and the entire tub is empty. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh God, what have I done <laughs> for someone who hasn't done any cardio in like nine months, <laughs> but you're doing push-ups, maybe still lots of push-ups. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's, that's it. That, yeah. That's my only thing. I really need to, I don't, I don't want to step on a scale. I don't want to know. It's like, I saw some stat the other day. What is it? Like 16 pounds is what the average American has gained in quarantine. Something ridiculous. I mean, they're calling it the COVID-19 pounds. <laughs> I think. Oh, um, well, that is a great, I I'm, I'm glad we ended on, uh, not to say that any of these questions were not fun. We got so many though. Thank you. Uh, to everyone, special thanks to uh, Brooke uh, Strastis, who sent me at least like 20. Uh, the, <laughs> I don't even know if we got to any of them, but uh, I am so appreciative of everybody who sent some. Uh, and I just want to say a quick thank you. I mean, I have not been here for necessarily all 200, but it feels like we've done a lot of bonus episodes too. I've probably done 200 uh, since then, but I try to be on as many as possible. And uh, just some real quick thanks uh, to anyone listening to this. Uh, tremendous thanks uh, to anyone who's ever taken the time to write a note. If you've written a review, holy cow, you're, you are at the apex of, of greatness because that's one of those things all of us keep meaning to write reviews for our favorite podcasts and, and we barely ever do. Um, but honestly, yeah, just listening, just ever saying anything to us, sending us a note on Twitter or an email or anything. Um, it just, it always means a lot. I love hearing from people. I think people assume we hear from folks all the time and we really don't like, it's pretty rare. And so someone's like, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I'm like, you know, you would think, <laughs> but, um, but Steph, I wanted to give a special thanks to you. You have been such a champion of the podcast, uh, since we launched it with this incredibly dumb name, uh, however many years ago. And, uh, you, a, you helped, uh, help me get away with launching it, uh, with this weird name, but also this episode has been such a great example of what we set out to do is Adweek has uh, interview podcasts. Uh, there are many interview podcasts. That was never the intent of this one. We, we certainly, we have guests. We love talking to guests. Um, but, you know, I think Steph can definitely speak to this too, is that what is so special about Adweek and is so rare is that we just love each other. Like we really love talking to each other, learning from each other. As this episode alone has shown, we, we've worked together sometimes for years and there's still so much. I'm so fascinated by everyone I work with. Um, and just the podcast is always such a nice excuse to just take a breath and chat with each other and just to be there for each other and with each other. 
Um, but Stefan, that was like the intent. And I feel like we've, I feel like we've done it. <laughs> yeah, David, I, I've been reminiscing today because I can, re, I can picture the conference room that we were in and David flew into New York from Alabama. And one of the top things on his mind was this idea of a podcast. And instead of, you know, creating it all himself, he brought the entire editorial staff into the room and, you know, hung, hung big pieces of paper and let everyone write down their, their ideas for this podcast and their name suggestions. And then we went around with stickers and put stickers on the ones we liked the most. And that's how, yeah, that's probably an ad. Uh, the name was born. And so um, you've done such a great job of making it inclusive from the start and making it a conversation, um, you know, with ourselves and, and with our readers as, as this episode is such a great example of. So um, just congrats to you. I'm so proud of what you've built and so grateful to people like Ko and Jess and all these fascinating, um, you know, intelligent people we have in our newsroom, funny people we have in our newsroom who come on each week and, and give it such um, character. It's a joy. Oh. And uh, Co, thank you so much for stepping in as a uh, producer. Again, I can't even remember now what it was like before because uh, it feels like you have been such a natural fit, both as a producer, as a co-host, uh, as a contributor. You've brought so many new and fascinating voices onto the show. You do so much work behind the scenes. Um, and, and Jess, you uh, are such the backbone. Again, it's like, how did we exist before Jess Ferris? It's it's kind of, as a, as a publication, I think, again, Steph and I have have both had these dreams for years of what a position like, uh, like Jess's could do, you know, how much a, a, we, how much we could grow beyond just social editor, just someone pushing things out to Twitter and, and Facebook every day. And Jess has 100% uh, encapsulated that dream and, and then some, uh, and it's just such a phenomenon. So thank you to you both as well. And again, to Steph. So what a lovely, lovely episode. Thank you all. Love this. I can't think of a better way to have spent our 200th episode. So uh, thanks to you all. Uh, and drop us a note. Uh, if you uh, have any more questions, happy to answer them as we can. Uh, we're easy to find on uh, on Twitter. If you're looking for any of us, just ping Adweek, add Adweek on Twitter, and Jess will point you to the right person. <laughs> you can find anybody there. Uh, and uh, you can always hit us at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Co M and edited by Lane McGivney. Uh, if you've not already, as I mentioned, we'd love for you to leave a review for the show. Those reviews help uh, new listeners discover the show and they just make us feel good. Uh, so look for that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner and we will be back next week. 